it just feels like one Lord's Day mist accumulates just so quickly. Um, happy to be back with you this morning and to pick up in Luke's gospel as uh, Luke's gospel really is ramping up as it comes to its climactic conclusions in chapter 24. The text that was read for you so far was actually 23, and that is going to be the text this morning is 23, um, beginning with verse 26, but actually what is being described for us in 26 and 27 really goes back to 1937. If you'll flip back there to chapter 1937, and it's because what we've been doing now for a couple of months is tracking what the church historically calls Holy Week. And we've been doing so for several chapters, beginning here in chapter 19 with verse 37 in what is traditionally called Palm Sunday. And now, again, we're going to be um, moving toward in the Easter season. I don't know how many weeks away um, from resurrection. I don't think we'll make it to resurrection um, in Luke's gospel naturally so that when we're celebrating it as a church, we'll happen to also be there chronologically in Luke's gospel. So maybe we'll just celebrate the resurrection a couple weeks late around here. But um, as you see in verse 37, we're beginning Holy Week with what is traditionally called Palm Sunday. And note there in the text I read 37 and 38 because it's, it's important to what Luke is signaling to us in chapter 23. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And then what they were shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This Jesus of Nazareth, blessed is the king. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So you see what they're celebrating is here comes the king. It is him. And there's a great multitude of disciples who identify him as such in these very moments. They're not all pretending. They're casting palms. And again, we did the work on, uh, a few weeks ago on the different pictures coming from the disciple from the other gospels. But they're casting palms down in honor of him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here he is, the rightful and true king. He's coming. And so Palm Sunday kicks off Holy Week in this regal celebration. And we say regal celebratory because there is a great multitude of disciples who believe. They rejoice. But again, to Luke 23, there's always another response when Christ is present. Always. And so with this Palm Sunday, though the great multitudes rejoice that here he comes, there is right there present, yet it's opposing sign. Verse 39 and some of the Pharisees, that is, the religious crowd, uh, uh, functional, organized. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke them. Rebuke your disciples for, for this display. I mean, they're calling you the king. They're saying that you come in the name of the Lord. Rebuke them for this display. And of course, he then answers. I tell you, if these were silent, it wouldn't make any difference. 
this is what we call the mixed multitude. That there is in the great multitudes a mixed community. Those who indeed identify Jesus truly, substantively, where their faith rests upon him as the true and sole object of their faith, and they indeed are redeemed. They receive of him. They feast at his table through faith and are so nourished. And yet there is also a mixed multitude among them. The, the tares growing among the wheat. And it's this battle at this day of Palm Sunday that continues for the next four days of Holy Week in Jerusalem. You think of the mixed multitude as we move ahead. You can kind of go forward now to our text of chapter 23. But in 22, you see the mixed multitude beginning even at the Passover table. Here's the church present at the table. And you see it is even there. Constituted discipleship, a mixed multitude. Judas is a man of unbelief. So whether it's in a microcosm setting, in a small picture, or it is largely how the crowds of Jerusalem are responding, there is a mixed multitude on the ground, and there's a mixed response to Jesus. And I draw your attention to this sense of the mixed multitude that's been working intensely throughout the Holy Week. is because that's what we have in the multitudes here in Luke 23. Look in verse 27. This is important for us to grasp. Verse 27, and there followed him a great multitude of people and a multitude of women. And, And of them, that is of the multitude, there were women. And they were mourning and they were lamenting for him. There is a great multitude of people gathered at this crucifixion moment. Luke so carefully by detail explains to us what pushed Pilate to hand Jesus over. Notice so very carefully, Luke so purposely writes in verse 23 of the same chapter of 23. Look in verse 23. And and I know Pastor Dan covered this last week. But notice carefully verse 23. But they were urgent. Demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. They were urgent, demanding with loud cries, he should be crucified. And due to that, due to the urgency, due to the demanding, due to the shouts, their voices prevailed. You see, at this point, it is mob rule 
they are the people that are materializing, the people of Psalm 2. And I don't have time to go to Psalm 2, and I read it just a few weeks ago. I know you recall the picture of Psalm 2. These are they gathered and materialized on Good Friday. They are those who in Psalm 2 absolutely refuse to have Jesus rule over them. And the manifestation of casting off his bonds and breaking his yoke is to shout, crucify him. In fact, Mark goes on to tell us, um, look over real briefly. We'll come back to Mark, but if you can, look over to Mark 15, just briefly for a moment. to see exactly how the crowd is functioning. And then we're going to move on, and we're going to see a man named Simon. But look at the multitudes. Mark 15, uh, kind of the same account, jumping into verse 12. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? What, what, what shall I do with him? A- a- following after the uh, Barabbas episode. What should I do with him? And they cried out, crucify him. What do you mean? What to do with him? Crucify him. And, and Pilate said to them, right? right? So, so Pilate is on the hot seat here. Well, no, 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 no. Hey, hang on, hang on, hang on. What would you really like me to do with him? Can we work this out? And that, that's exactly how he's functioning. Look at verse 14. And Pilate said to them, why? Why? The bloodlust. What evil has he done? What has he actually materially done that's evil and gross that, that I ought crucify him? What do you really want me to do with him? Crucify him. That's what we want. Why? What is he? Why? But notice how Mark frames the crowd's response. But they shouted, All the more. Crucify him. So, back to Pilate, as Luke records the same thing, it was their insistent voices that prevailed. Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus... He delivered him over to be crucified. You see, the more Pilate tried to reason with the raging crowd, the more amped up and filled with bloodlust they became. He was trying to find that mediating position, that sense of maybe I could lash him, scourge him, punish him severely, but then release him. But they irrationally, with hatred, screamed out, no, it will not work. Crucify him. So at this point back in um, Luke 23, I want to address the question as we move towards Simon that the question of the identity of the multitude at this point still remains. 
we have some real picture of the mass of the multitude, don't we? They're screaming and shouting and frothing at the mouth. Jesus of Nazareth must be crucified now. And again, it's not a couple people. Both Luke and Mark, their accounts are similar. The reason why Pilate gave them over is because their voices prevailed. It's the mass multitude is indeed those who desire the Lord to be crucified. But yet it is important that we notice, and and this is why Luke gives us the account, and and this is how I'm going to argue this morning. Luke is giving us an account of Simon of Cyrene in order that we might recognize that not everyone in Jerusalem was so fickle. That not everyone who greeted him on that Palm Sunday rejected him by Friday. Sometimes the overwhelming evidence of indeed the crowds that I've just read for you, screaming and shouting and frothing at the mouth, wanting his blood shed now, overwhelms the narratival stories to make us think, well, then that's all who is present. How is it that we get from great multitudes rejoicing over the king who is to come, whose faith is resting upon him as its truest and saving object alone, becomes those who are nowhere present and everyone from that same crowd wants him crucified by Friday. It'd be my argument, Luke and Mark as well. Signal, that's not the case. There are those who, though the majority voice ringing out, was indeed one of faithless hatred and bloodlust for our Lord. There was also present, as always is present, a faithful remnant. You're going to see in just a moment, again, in in verse 27, this faithful remnant is within this great multitude that is filled with mixed people. Verse 27, and there followed him a great multitude of people. And again, the description of the women is that they were mourning and lamenting for him. Um, And the introduction of Simon. It is the signal to us that not everyone in Jerusalem participated in the historical meltdown that continued unto Jesus' crucifixion. There were some that day on Good Friday who belonged to the church. There is always a faithful remnant. God always, in all ages, preserves a church for his glory. No matter how dark the days in Israel, the church of the Old Testament, no matter captivity or how despairing their time was, there was always a faithful remnant. God always maintains a church, no matter how hard and hidden its form. This is the argument from this text, and it's signaled through the man Simon. Notice verse 26, then, where our text begins. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene. Now, 
it, it, there's some question over who they are. Um, it, it's not particularized of who they are, but it's relatively easy to um, draw a simple inference who they would be would probably be a combination simply of those overseeing the execution, or, or some Romans and, and Jewish individuals. So again, those who are in control of the execution process is who's being described in the first portion of verse 26. And as they led him away, th those overseeing the executionary process, they then, as they're leading him towards the place of a skull, where indeed they're going to oversee his being nailed to the cross and set up on its cross beams, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the hill country, or coming in from the country, and they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Now, as you notice, we're now introduced into a new character named Simon with very little background as to who he actually is. Right? He, it, it, that's all we have of him, Simon of Cyrene. If you go over to Mark, you're, you're told Simon of Cyrene. And then there's a little detail I want to give you in just a moment that helps us piece together some material of who indeed this Simon of Cyrene is. At this point in time, there is very little background given to you, and you've been told a new character. Now, if you look at, and we've been preaching these narrative stories for over two years now, and something I'm sure we all share together as we read these narratival stories, we recognize there's no detail that's to go unnoticed. There's not a lot of wasted space in the, narr in the narrative story. Each person plays a significant part and role and contribution to the whole. It's not like, oh, hey, this dude Simon showed up. Just keep moving, reader. Don't worry about it. No, no, that, that's a significant piece. And so is the action that comes after in the life of Simon. And it's instructional for you and for me. The key piece, the very first key piece, because again, he doesn't give us really any introductory material, but the little bit that he gives is crucial as we begin to dissect, who is this man, Simon of Cyrene? The very first piece of evidence for how we're supposed to read the interaction of who is Simon of Cyrene the first piece of evidence that we're introduced to about Simon that frames how we view him is the direction that he is traveling. Again, no detail is too small. Look at verse 26 once again. How are we going to wrap our minds around this Simon character in the middle of multitudes who want Jesus to die and die now? And then there's these women over here who are lamenting and are mourning for him. And this crowd is in hysterical meltdown. And behold, they grab Simon of Cyrene. Who is he? What is he doing here? How are we supposed to read him? Well, I'll tell you this. He's coming in from the countryside. He's coming in. Wait, I thought the direction is going out. So who was there going out when Simon is coming in? Well, there are the people whose voices have largely prevailed. Verse 23, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. Crucify him. What if I whip him and release him? No, it won't do. And well, what, did, what did Pilate do? Well, to the multitudes gathered, their voices prevailed. And as they led him away, the multitude with this blood lust, they led him away. And they, overseeing the execution, seized one man. And his name is Simon of Cyrene. 
Not just Simon. Simon of Cyrene. Well, how did they seize upon him? Well, because I want you to read it well. He was coming in from the country. You see, in other words, Luke is marking out to each of us by introduction to Simon that Simon had not participated in the riotous scene associated with Jesus' trial and condemnation. That's who he is. He never shouted, crucify him. That's our introduction to Simon. He wasn't there in verse 23, shouting urgently and demanding that Jesus be crucified. No, 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 because that was a crowd here overseeing the faux trial in the stamp of condemnation on him. Not Simon, he wasn't there because they're leading him out and he was coming in. Again, why is Luke signaling the direction? Why does it matter that we learn about Simon in this dark moment in what was said earlier in chapter 22? This is the hour of darkness, the power of darkness at work. Why do we need to know something about Simon? Because that day, that Good Friday in Jerusalem, there was a godly remnant even beyond the remaining 11 disciples. God always has a church, no matter how hidden its form. This is instructional as well as the reformers were to read these texts as well during the medieval times. That there was no remaining church, but they would argue indeed, no, there always is a church even in the darkest of Babylonian captivities. Luke wants us to see in the man Simon by way of introduction coming in as the, the furious crowd is heading out. This individual passing in was not there then when they were shouting, crucify him. Because the hostility that led to Jesus' execution was not universal. What more might we know about this Simon of Cyrene? If you'll turn to Acts chapter 2 just briefly to introduce uh, a little bit more material into this man, Simon of Cyrene. Acts chapter 2, and you recall, Acts is like Luke part 2. Same author. So Luke here, the doctor, is continuing to teach about the birth of the church, about its escalated age, about the spirit coming and empowering the church as it moves the goalposts forward taking the gospel from Judea and Jerusalem. Now the scope of the book of Acts is how they took the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what the book is. And so chronologically, you watch it move from region to region to region to region to region to region to region. Why? Because chapter 1, that's what we're about to do, take the gospel to the ends of the earth. A significant portion of that is here in chapter 2. And, and so again, because it's the same author, and it's kind of Luke's gospel part 2, 
I want you to see how this helps us grasp perhaps some background material that is evidence for my reading, I hope, that is fair and straightforward, of the man Simon of Cyrene. Look in chapter 2, verse 5, beginning in verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So, so get the characterization of who these men are, right? So far, we see that they are devout. There are devout individuals, devout Jews, who are gathered here at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Now, so, so again, think in your mind, does this have some connection to the man Simon? I'm going to try and build that gap in our next move in the text. Notice in verse, um, in, uh, where am I jumping to? I'm jumping to verse 10. Because he then goes through, he says, there's devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them in his own language, which as a, is a rabbit trail. And I'm, I'm running way out of time, but I never stop for a good rabbit trail. It, it's, remember, in all of our discussion about sign gifts and, and tongues and its function in the church, yay or nay, and how evangelicalism seems overly obsessed with this conversation at times, is to remember one, one staggering piece of the phenomena that is actually happening here. The actual, I would persuade you, the highlight of the phenomena is the hearing of the gospel. Everyone wants to constantly talk about tongues. The phenomena here, the accent is on the hearing. You see, it's a reversal of Babel from Genesis 11. That's the phenomenological experience. People are hearing the gospel in their own tongue. Anyway, I can't digress too far. I'm already way behind. Verse 10. So in verse 10, you see from, from these regions, he, he, he lists the regions of who is all gathered, who he already characterized as devout. And notice in verse 10, Egypt and parts of, in the end of verse 10, Libya. What do you mean coming from Libya? It belongs to Cyrene. You see, the conclusion I'm trying to draw and the, the bridge I'm trying to build about what we see in the man Simon is that he very likely, the man of Cyrene, belonged to such a crowd. That is, the man Simon of Cyrene, I would draw in a conclusion here from chapter 2 that he is a devout Jew. He is one of Libya, the region that belongs to Cyrene. And that's the signpost that Luke and Mark are both giving us to say it was Simon. Like any Simon? Uh, well, Simon of Cyrene. What is my characterization of Cyrene? Well, it could be multiple things. But Luke part two tells us one of the critical pieces is that there were devout men from Cyrene who didn't yell that day on Good Friday, crucify him, crucify him. He was coming in as they were going out. A second piece of information that, that I seek to persuade you in a background of learning and reading of who Simon is so that we 
feel the weight and the, and, and the theological um, application of what happens to Simon. Uh, the second piece, so one, I'm arguing Simon is a devout man. And it's proven first by his direction of coming in. And it's proven here as Luke part two signals that there's devout men coming from Cyrene, where we know Simon is of Cyrene. And secondly, if you look over in chapter six of, uh, of Acts, just look over um, again as uh, Luke part two keeps going. You, you see, um, I'm, I'm going to just make a simple argument, and I don't want to put too much weight on it, but I do want to add it to the body of evidence to be hopefully persuasive and filling in the background of who indeed this man Simon was on that Good Friday, and that is in verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the, freemen, of the freedmen, as it was called, and you notice who is present as well, of the Cyrenians. So again, there's a synagogue of worship in Libya, the region belonging to Cyrene. It would be my argument that if we, if we piece together the language of there is devout Jews there from Cyrene and that there is identified later in Acts for a different purpose, but we note historically in Acts chapter 6 there was a synagogue in Cyrene as well. That means there is a place of worship. And there are devout Jews who are there and do worship. And I'm making the argument that that's our signpost of identifying Simon as belonging to Cyrene. I'm characterizing Simon as a devout Jew who very likely belonged to a synagogue of worship in Cyrene, a region of Libya, North Africa. The third and final characterization, and then I'm going to seek to kind of bring the sermon to a conclusion is Mark 15. Will you please turn over to Mark 15 just for a moment, if indeed Simon of Cyrene is a devout man of belief, and he belongs to the synagogue very likely, would have a way of growth, would have a way of godliness by belonging to a synagogue in Cyrene. Look at Mark 15, 21. Um, notice this is... This is um, Mark's angle on Simon, 21, and they compelled a passerby, right? Again, he's still directionally moving. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. Note the last part is what I want to draw your attention here in Mark's account. The father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, now, hear it read all the way through. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Why tell us who his sons are? Do you think we, we just skip over that? No, every detail matters. Why did he tell, why does Mark feel the need to tell his audience, the father of Alexander and Rufus? What would you think in your mind? Why would he tell me who his boys were? Because they're men in the church. Take up and read. And if you doubt it, ask Alexander and Rufus. They'll tell you their father's story. If you're doubting, go to the 
boys you know, the men at this point in the gospel you know, Alexander and Rufus. Go ask them, in other words, the final piece of who is Simon of Cyrene in the portrait of a devout Jew who belonged to a synagogue in, in, in Cyrene is that he was a man who transmitted his faith to his children. So much so that Mark can say he belongs to these two young men. It's, it's Simon of Cyrene. Who is that? The father of Alexander and Rufus. Go ask them. They'll tell you their father's story. One author concludes the portrait of Simon this way. Quote, it's likely that his sons remained well-known figures in the church after their father, telling his story of the crucifixion of Jesus on that day. That is why Mark tells everybody their name is. By piecing together the biblical evidence regarding the portrait of Simon of Cyrene, we are given a portrait of faith. So much so that when the almighty son of God's mortal strength was failing, do you see it? Look at the text. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, a devout man who belonged to the synagogue of the Cyrenians, who has two boys named Alexander and Rufus. He was coming in from the country, and they laid on him the cross. Carry it behind Jesus. Why? Because when the almighty son of God's mortal strength was failing, his church... Simon helped to bear his burden. God always has a church, no matter how small its size or hidden its form. But as I conclude our time together, I have to conclude with, with what happens to him just briefly. Be, why? What's to remain of the man Simon? It is its applicational point to you. It's applicational point to me. Luke wants each of us in these last closing moments as we read verse 26. He wants us to see what characterizes the life of the faithful. Here is a faithful man, Simon of Cyrene. That would be my argument. And then what happens to him is an applicational word to all like him, those who are faithful. Look at verse 26, and as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene a believing individual who was coming in from the country and they laid on him the cross. And notice what he was to do with it. Carry it. How? Behind Jesus. This portrait is one that brings together history, the events of that day and that Good Friday, as the church calls it, that day of historical event, and the theology and its meaning and communication 
it merges these two, history and theology, into one. You see, on the one hand, it was normal custom that a condemned individual, and you know this part of the story, it is very custom in Roman time that indeed the condemned individual had to carry his own crossbeam to the place of execution. So, so what's happening here? Well, obviously the beatings upon our Lord were so severe that he was breaking down under the weight of the crossbeam. Well, why didn't they just let him fall down and die and drag him off? Because they didn't want him to die before the malice that they had planned for him could be applied to him. They wanted him to survive to the place of a skull and complete their bloodlust. Otherwise, you just let him die. He's dying. He can't carry his own crossbeam. It's customary that, that, that those who are facing execution do. Why wouldn't they just let him die? Hey, you, carry this cross. Why don't you just let him die? They have more malice that awaits him. Historic, uh, so that, that, that's the historical side, cruelty of execution, but it brings together for you and I in our closing moments the theology of it all. I'm sure you can guess what the theology is. The applicational element to you and I, it is the cost of one's discipleship. Again, you have to ask yourself as a reader, think of Simon. You have to ask yourselves, out of all of the people there that day, verse 27, there followed him a great multitude of people. Why Simon of Cyrene? Why was he picked? Why was he who was coming in from the country, who didn't have anything going on in the scene, why was he seized upon, brought over, and commanded to carry the cross? Why Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus? Why? Because he believed. Because he was a disciple. That's the weight of the application. It's a picture for all disciples. One author concludes this way, quote, Simon of Cyrene was probably known to be a friend of the Christ. And so this act of cross-bearing was done. And, and here the author's comment to put a reproach upon him so that he might bear that reproach after Jesus, end quote. You see, it's not just Christ who is bearing reproach, but all who follow after him. That's the cost of our discipleship. I conclude our time simply by reading these texts because it started our Lord's preaching on this theme of the cost of your discipleship, of which we see physically, historically in the man of Simon of Cyrene and theologically as equal, equally applied to each and every one in here whose faith rests in Jesus as the sole true object of saving faith. Because before it materialized in Simon, it was preached to you. Luke 9, 23 Quote, if 
any want to become my followers, let them take up their cross daily and follow me. Why Simon of Cyrene? Luke 14, our Lord again, 14 verse 27, quote, whoever does not carry the cross, you, Simon of Cyrene, come over here and bear this man's cross. Jesus says, whoever does not carry the cross, whoever says, no, I won't, whoever does not carry the cross and follow after me, they told him, carry the cross and carry it behind Jesus. Whoever does not, cannot be my disciple. And they led him away. They seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. And they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you will help us to feel the weight of our cost of discipleship. That indeed it historically happened in time to Simon. But it equally applies to our own idolatrous hearts. We so soften the call. Help us bear up underneath the weight of the cost of discipleship. Let us kill the sin that so easily entangles, strips our vision of following obedience, fills our heart with every kind of sin. Oh God, renew our minds, rinse our hearts, empower our lives, that we be people of faith. So nourish us now with your table. We have heard you in your word. We now taste and see that the Lord is good in your table. In your holy name I pray.